The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome back to This Is Working. On every episode of This Is Working, we talk to leaders who've had a significant impact on business and society. One of the biggest issues facing us today is how we're going to put COVID behind us. And in the last few weeks, news of three new vaccines has made it seem like that's now possible. I wanted to better understand what was coming. And we were lucky enough to get Dr. Jim Young Kim to explain the state of play. As an anthropologist and physician specializing in infectious diseases, Dr. Kim has garnered a reputation as one of the most influential leaders of our time. He founded Partners in Health, led the World Health Organization's HIV AIDS department, and until 2019 was the president of the World Bank, where he committed the org to ending extreme poverty and helping fight climate change. Now he's a vice chair at private equity firm Global Infrastructure Partners, but his second job is fighting COVID. Well, you know, Dan, I've been trying um, uh, in so many in so many different publications uh, in my work uh, to warn the world that that this kind of pandemic could happen. I think the count is at least three or four different uh, specific publications where we came out and said, "Hey, guys, you know, we've got to wake up because a pandemic that can really take over the entire world is possible." The last one we did uh, was uh, when when Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, and I commissioned a study to look at where we were in terms of risk for this happening. And of course, what we determined was that we're at great risk. But in that uh, particular uh, publication, A World at Risk, uh, what we said was, you know, the developed countries are in pretty good shape. It's the developing countries we need to be most worried about. But now we've seen that even the most developed country was at far greater risk uh, than we ever could have imagined. So, you know, I've worked on tuberculosis, HIV, cholera, Ebola, and now this is the fifth uh, pandemic. And I had this specific conversation with uh, with Tony Fauci that this is the fifth one that Tony and I have worked together on. And so I wish we didn't have that kind of record, but unfortunately, here we are. When you say that this is, that you felt like the developed world was in pretty good shape, what do you think you missed? What is it that that is causing the developed world to keep seeing these spikes and not be able to get this under control. Now, there are certain countries that obviously are, but there are many, and the United States is at the far end of the spectrum, that just have not been able to get this under control. So you look back now, what do you? Th- what, what signs did you not pick up on or what did you miss? I should have seen this because, you know, what do we talk about on, on, on in LinkedIn all the time? It's leadership. I just didn't realize how much individual leadership would impact the way that we can fight virus, right? So for example, in, in all of the pandemics that I had worked on previously, the role of the United States Centers for Disease Control in everything that we did, even at, at, at the World Health Organization, was so dependent on having support from the US CDC. This time, the US CDC is, was really sidelined in ways that I think are tragic uh, because there are fantastic people there. Uh, one of the one of the best parts of this transition is going to be to get the CDC back in the game, uh, not only for the United States, uh, but for the entire world. And so I think what we didn't see was just the extent to which uh, uh, an individual leader, um, leaders, the leaders of CDC, leaders of all these other uh, institutions, if they failed to see this and failed to move quickly enough, 
that we would have absolutely disastrous consequences. And so if you look at, you know, what are the four countries, for example, uh, that have the highest death rate? Well, one of them, India, it, you know, it, you, you can understand why, because it's a, a country that still uh, has many, many people living in extreme poverty. But the other three are the United States, Mexico, and Brazil. Uh, three countries in which the leaders themselves have been uh, denialists about uh, the importance of COVID. Jim, would you talk about the three? We've seen three vaccine breakthroughs uh, in the last few weeks. Can you walk us through those, how they look from your eyes, how we should be thinking about them? And I think a lot of us are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm not sure whether we should be talking about that right now. Well, so, so Dan, the, the, this is... Um, an, an incredible development and an incredible in a lot of different ways. And, you know, uh, having having uh, said that in terms of the public health response, uh, you know, the leadership in this country was not what I would have hoped for. We also have to say that that the massive investment in uh, vaccine development was a very positive thing. So if you look at the three vaccines, two of them are with a completely different technology, a technology that we've never used to make vaccines before, where literally the messenger RNA is injected in, into the system and, and it turns the cells into uh, factories for the, the, the so-called spike protein uh, on the coronavirus. And the results are very, very encouraging, um, you know, 95 plus percent effective, meaning that it's, it's, it stops infection. If you look at, you know, the, if you compare the two groups, the one that got the vaccine and the one uh, that got the placebo, 95 percent of the cases are in the group with, uh, that, that got the placebo. This is really, really encouraging. The downside of it is that, one, the Pfizer vaccine requires it to be kept in temperatures of minus 70 degrees Celsius. The uh, Moderna is a little bit better, but still requires something like minus 20 degrees. It can survive in a refrigerator for a longer period of time than Pfizer, but still makes it difficult, for example, in developing countries. Now, the one that's coming out of AstraZeneca and Oxford is even more encouraging in the sense that you can store it between two to eight degrees Celsius. So in other words, in a refrigerator. And so this could be used in developing countries. But the one thing that I, I wanna remind everybody of, and, and, and World Health Organization said this just, I think three days ago, it's so important that they said, having the vaccine is like building the base camp on Mount Everest. You still have to climb Mount Everest. And, and they, they speak from great experience. I mean, the, the only disease we've ever eradicated, which is smallpox, took just a tremendous effort. Polio, another disease which, that we're trying to eradicate, we're still not quite finished. And it re it's required just an enormous uh, amount of effort in terms of logistics. How do, you, how do you keep things refrigerated and get it there? How do you detect the cases? How do you think about uh, an approach from country to country? So there's still a huge hill to climb. And uh, you know, my own sense of it is that the countries that have the best ground game and it turns out that in politics and in pandemics, the ground game is absolutely critical. If you're doing a good job of suppressing the virus now, you know, th this is China, Hong Kong, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore. And then there are some countries in Europe that are also doing a very good job. Uh, you know, Germany is doing a much, much better job than, than most. In Africa, you know, Rwanda has kept their death levels and their infection levels extremely low. So there, there are places all over the world that have done a great job. Those are the communities that are going to be able to deliver the vaccine most effectively, and they're the ones that are going to get back to normal economic activity fastest. And so 
in the U.S. that here are the things I worry about. I, I think the military has been doing a good job, you know, the, as they do in terms of the logistics of delivering the vaccine. And right now, it, it seems like the number of people who say they're going to get the vaccine has been going up. Uh, but, you know, it, it was 50 percent, you know, 50 percent said that they were going to get it you know, months ago. It went down to 42 percent. And it seems to be getting higher the number of people who say they will get it. But people who are going to be suspicious of a vaccine, whether it's from the one group that still doesn't think COVID is a big issue or another group, and this is communities of color, uh, you know, people living in, in much more difficult circumstances, they have their own set of suspicions. And so the way you get past that is by having a really strong ground game, a public health system that's doing uh, testing and contact tracing and supported isolation. In other words, putting people in isolation and quarantine, but supporting them if they don't uh, have enough food, if they can't, if they if, if they don't have diapers for their children. You know, th this kind of system is necessary in every state for us to get the vaccine out. And unfortunately, we, we, we don't have that in place in most of the United States. So we don't have that in place in the U.S. And it is unclear how we would get the political or civic will to get that in place. Does that mean that these vaccines, that we never leave base camp? I don't think so. I think that the seriousness of the effort um, you know, in the Trump administration uh, with the military to get a plan in place, I think, I think it's, it's very encouraging, the fact that they've been so serious about it. Uh, so, so now the next steps are going to be to get it out there, not just in the fanciest health centers, you know, that that, uh, that can keep something at minus 70 degrees Celsius, but out there in all the communities that that uh, that might benefit. And so, you know, we need to get a 90 percent uh, effective vaccine needs about 70 percent or so or more uh, of the people uh, who've gotten the vaccine uh, to actually reach what we are calling herd immunity, where there are enough people who are immune in a population so that it's very difficult for the virus to spread. So we need a high percentage of people uh, to get vaccinated. But Dan, here are the questions that still remain. How long will you have this immunity? Now, you know, there are people who have seen the, their level of antibody to uh, COVID drop even after uh, they've had the disease, after, after they've been sick from it. And so if these people are losing their antibody levels, having been exposed to the entire virus, what will happen if you're just exposed to the spike protein? Now, it, it could be that, that it's more powerful. It could be that it's longer lasting. It could be all those things. And it would be great if that were the case. We don't know. What happens when you study something for just 10 months, which is about where we are, is that you just don't have all the answers. How is it going to work in elderly people? How is it going to work in nursing homes? You know, how long will the, the, the protection last? We still don't know the, these things. Uh, but uh, overall, you know, I have to say it's been amazing. And, you know, now that we've got this uh, mRNA technology, the question is, my goodness, what other things uh, hmm. we use this for, especially uh, uh, for diseases that affect mostly developing countries? It's very exciting. If I'm not mistaken, the vaccines don't actually stop the spread. Or we don't know yet whether these vaccines will stop the spread. They stop you from getting horribly sick and potentially dying from this, but it could still continue to spread even, even after you get the vaccine. Is that right? I think what they're measuring right now is, you know, among the, you know, in the, the, their cohort is ranging up to 45, 50,000 and, and uh, some, some more. In that group of people, when they have positive cases, how many of them come from the placebo group and how many of them come 
from the vaccinated group. I think right now, as far as, I mean, and maybe there are people who, who are more involved with these studies who know more, but as far as I can tell, what we're really looking at is that for right now. That's very powerful. That, that, that's important. Uh, but these other more subtle questions, I haven't seen data on that. And that, that will simply uh, take time to get. And once we have that data, that will be very helpful. And as we use the vaccine, we'll, we'll get m- m- much more of that data. You have a history of bringing uh, drugs and treatments into parts of the world where people said this is not po- it's actually not possible to, uh, to help these people and it's going to be too expensive. We can't do it. When you look at something like coronavirus and you're talking about the ground game, what do you think needs to happen? Are you talking to business or government leaders about what, what has to be put into place to be beyond just the army to be able to get the vaccines out and to make people feel like this is something they have to do? Well, you know, Dan, it was, I was very fortunate to uh, uh, early on in April and May to speak to the entire Democratic um, uh, caucus of the U.S. Congress. And, in, and it goes back to infectious disease. Uh, I've worked with uh, Speaker Pelosi since really she uh, joined um, the U.S. Congress. Uh, and she joined the U.S. Congress, a lot of people don't know this, to help fight uh, HIV, I mean, to fight AIDS. She's from San Francisco. And so she was an AIDS activist from the very beginning. And so I worked with her when I was at the, uh, at the World Bank very closely. And so we started talking and I said, Speaker Pelosi, it's great that we're spending trillions of dollars on fiscal stimulus. But, you know, putting my World Bank hat on, this is fundamentally not an economic crisis. This is a public health crisis with severe economic implications. And so I, what, I, what I said to her is we now, in the next stimulus package, we have to have something that specifically works uh, to build the public health response. Because no, ma- no matter what you say about where we are now, you're gonna have to have this system in place, whether it's to, to help uh, deliver the vaccine, whether it's to, in the end game, as cases get lower and lower, make sure that you can still put out these outbreaks wherever you find them. And she, she uh, agreed. And again, I think it's her background in, in having dealt with public health issues for so long. So as part of the second stimulus package, there was $75 billion for something called TTSI, Testing, Tracing, and Supported Isolation. This was incredibly important. $75 billion is not enough. There should be more. Uh, but it was an incredibly important first step. And then, of course, when that went to the Senate, it was, it was killed. And so I, I'm really I- interested to see whether uh, we'll get that kind of money uh, for um, the next phase of, uh, of, uh, of COVID. Uh, that kind of money could be used to build systems. And, and I think we've gotten a lot of traction. Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is talking about a health worker corps uh, of hundreds of thousands. I, I think it actually needs to be bigger than that. But here's the argument we've made. In Massachusetts, where we, meaning Partners in Health, the organization I helped to found in the 80s, we partners in health are running the contact tracing program. And here's some of the things we found. 20% of all the people we contact need food assistance, right? So this is not just a program to trace your contacts in order to get information to stop the virus. It's also a program to make sure that if you're uh, sick yourself or if you've been exposed, that you can isolate or quarantine and that we will support you with food, diapers, whatever you need, that we, we will do that for you and uh, that has made a huge difference to people who don't have two homes and five bedrooms, you know, people who have to go to work every day. And so we found that the contact tracing program directly speaks at social uh, inequalities and is a blow for social justice. Second thing, it's, a, it's an employment program. 
So many people, lots of good skills are unemployed. You know, we pay $35 an hour uh, in Massachusetts, so it's a rel relatively good job, and they can get overtime, and they, 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 they have the dignity of having the job. The third thing is that if you spend this kind of money on people who are working to help uh, curb the epidemic, it turns out also to be fiscal stimulus, because when you give the, the, the people money in their salary, they actually spend it on the kinds of things that we need spending on to get the economy back up and running. So to me, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer that we do this because it's jobs, it's social justice, and it's fiscal stimulus. But you know, uh, certain uh, leaders in the Senate have literally carved those items out of the, uh, the fiscal stimulus bill. So I hope it's, I hope it's put back in, uh, but uh, to not do so, I think, Dan, it, it's, uh, it just makes no sense to me because I keep telling my friends, business leaders, hey guys, this is not a financial or economic crisis. It's a public health crisis. It makes no sense to try to put out a fire with measures uh, that in fact are not getting at the cause of the fire. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. You straddle both the infectious disease and the finance world. There's not many people who do that. Are you also talking to business leaders? What, kind, what are you hearing back when you talk to them about what is actually needed? They're basically looking at what's happening with viruses, uh, with the vaccines and treatments. And it's totally understandable that they're looking at that. And their assumption is that once we have a vaccine, it's over. But you know, already you're hearing the scientists who developed the uh, Pfizer vaccine has been saying, "Look, we're not going to get this to everybody for a long time." And you know, the first uh, uh, sort of uh, signs of really normal life in the hardest hit areas, including the United States, is going to is going to be next winter, right? So at least another year. And you know, I I would say you want to speed that up. The way to speed that up is to build health, public health systems that can put out outbreaks, that can uh, deliver vaccines, that can help people stay safe. That's the way to speed all that up. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, the business leaders have said, well, I mean, you know, in the United States, we're not going to be able to do that kind of thing. And so let's just wait for the vaccine. I, I've been giving the warning. There's nothing. It's not proven to be effective yet. The, the word effective we use when it works actually in the community What's, what's been proven now is efficacy. In, in experimental situations, does it work? The answer is yes. The next test is to see if it's effective. I know most people use the words interchangeably, but in public health and in the sciences, this is what we, this is how it's different. Efficacy has been proven, effectiveness not yet. And to make sure that, that it's effective also, we have to have 
a much, much more robust investment in public health. I, I hope we can get that message across in this uh, new Congress and new Senate. How have the pharmaceutical companies been able to make these vaccines so fast? To go back to um, the beginnings of, uh, of, of the outbreak, there are a lot of criticisms going back and forth, especially between China and the United States. But you know, China made the entire genetic footprint, the um, uh, genetic specifics of this virus uh, available two, two, three weeks after you know, they said this is spreading uh, from person to person. So this was available very early. That was important. And, and the interesting thing about the mRNA vaccine is that um, these scientists had been working on uh, using this particular mRNA technology, but for other diseases, for cancer, for other diseases that we hoped uh, it would be applicable for. It, it had never been tried as a vaccine. So they quickly turned their research from working on what they had been working on to working on a, on a COVID vaccine. And, and it happened and it happened very quickly. The uh, AstraZeneca virus vaccine is a, is a more traditional, it's a chimpanzee adenovirus uh, that has in it the genetic material also of the spike protein. And so that, that's a more traditional uh, route. But I have to say, it's amazing that any of these have gotten uh, their vaccines into so many people already and already have results. I think it's just because, you know, the pressure to move and the resources that were made available so that um, uh, these companies and these universities could move uh, was really unprecedented. So it's very encouraging to me. It's extremely encouraging to me. And I hope that what we'll find is that as new coronaviruses, and we know that they'll come as new flu viruses, as these new uh, viruses inevitably come back at us, that we can develop these rapid development systems even more uh, so that we can respond with every new vaccine. But um, again, even if we had the best system in the world, having to vaccinate you know, seven plus billion people is a logistical nightmare. Can be done, uh, but it can't be done without building the ground game. And once again, Dan, I keep saying this, building the ground game, guys, not only helps you with the, and, and I shouldn't say guys, I mean, men and women, uh, uh, building the ground game isn't just something to do for the pandemic, it's fiscal stimulus, it's a job. It's a, it's a wonderful way to remake uh, healthcare systems, like in the United States, healthcare systems that are focused usually on curative care for very sick people to a real, really a health system that can have a huge impact on the health of uh, populations. I just wanna break in here and say that what Jim is talking about around contact tracing is incredibly important. It's also one of the fastest growing jobs that we're seeing on LinkedIn. So it's taking hold. It might not be taking hold at the levels Jim says we need, but it's growing and it's growing fast. During our talk, someone wrote in in the comments and they wanted to know about a football that was over Jim's right shoulder. So I asked him about it and got a surprising story about leadership. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, uh, we were in a situation uh, early in the pandemic uh, where some of the most famous, most sophisticated hospitals in the world, Massachusetts General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, were not getting PPE. They, they didn't have enough K uh, N95 masks. And so we looked around and the place where they had masks that we could purchase uh, en masse was China. As World Bank president, I spent a lot of time in China. We, I have colleagues uh, who are, I'm working on on the infrastructure um, uh, business who are in, in, in China right now. 
the, the place where we could get them quickly was actually uh, Shenzhen near Hong Kong in China. And so we needed a plane. And uh, this was just desperate because Governor Baker in Massachusetts was just beside himself and told me he couldn't sleep at night thinking that that his own healthcare workers at these great hospitals were using a single N95 mask for a week, right? Which is just not, it, it does it makes no sense. And so we were thinking about how can we get a plane? And so Governor Baker called uh, Robert Kraft, who's the owner of the New England Patriots, and said, can we borrow your plane? And, uh, you know, to, to their great credit, uh, Bob and Jonathan Kraft stepped up and said, whatever you need. And so because China had such strict rules, if you went to China, you had to quarantine there for 14 days. We found a window so that the plane could land, but only be on the ground for three hours. And if they took off again before the three hours was up, then they could leave without having to quarantine for 14 days. I was working with my colleagues to make sure that the shipments came, all the PPE was there. We had to get it ready to load onto the airplane the moment it landed, and it worked. And you know, if you if you Google this, you'll see Jonathan and, and and Robert talking about this. It's very moving. And you know, when when that plane landed, when it was unloading, Governor Baker did a press conference with uh, with Jonathan in the back, and he wept. He cried right there during the press conference because he was so worried that he was sending his own health workers in without this protection. So I, I'm, I'm really, really grateful uh, to the Crafts for doing it. They've been a class act from the beginning. I'm a huge Patriots fan. And so they didn't need to do anything, but they sent me this football, uh, which finally made my kids think that I may be a little bit cool. That's great. What a great story. I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that to be the tale of the football. Uh, that's incredible. It ties into uh, the world we are living in right now. We only have a few minutes left. I want to ask you a question, not about the pandemic, not about vaccines, but about your uh, history. You have worked, you have had some amazing jobs. You've been president of Dartmouth, the head of the World Bank. You left the World Bank in 2019. That's the kind of job that most people are like, I'm going to stay in here until they run me out. How do you make the decision on when to leave a job? Well, you know, one of the things, Dan, is I, I really believe in coaching. I, I, I believe that, you know, anyone can get better. And this goes back to a story. My, my very good friend, Atul Gawande, he's a surgeon. And he came to the realization. He said, you know, Tiger Woods, the best golfer in the world at the time, has a coach. And here I am, a surgeon. And after I finished my residency, I don't have a coach anymore. Uh, so he asked a senior surgeon if he would be his coach. And uh, the, the senior surgeon uh, said, oh, Atul, you know, you're such a great surgeon. I don't think there's anything I can tell you. And Atul said, well, can you just come in the operating room and watch what I'm doing and then tell me what you think? And so after the surgery, the very distinguished, someone who I trained with uh, as well uh, when I was a medical student, uh, said, uh, well, Atul, you know, you're an incredibly gifted surgeon. But here are 15 things that I saw that you might want to think about. And Atul's numbers actually got better. Look, I, I'm a complete believer in leadership training, and I've had a leadership coach for a, a very long time, Marshall Goldsmith, who is, you know, um, a, a devoted LinkedIn community member. And so Marshall, uh, Marshall's specialty is telling people when it's a good time to leave. And so, you know, you mentioned in the very kind introduction that we received a capital increase. And frankly, you know, um, in the context in, in 2018, with the Trump administration sometimes, uh, you know, being skeptical about the multilateral world, People told me there's no way on earth that you're going to get this capital increase. And uh, we got it. And it was historic. And good thing we got it because now, you know, the, uh, the, the World Bank is doing, I think, more than three times 
uh, what we were doing when I first started at the World Bank Group. So uh, what Marshall told me was, look, things uh, are probably not going to get better for you after the capital increase, uh, and things definitely could get worse. And so if you're ready to do something else, now's the time to do it. And, and, and what Marshall says is that this always, always, always elicits a reaction from leaders. Well, but, you know, my board loves me. They tell me that they can't do without me. There's so many projects that I want to finish. And so Marshall says, OK, so look, uh, uh, as much as everyone loves you, once you announce you're leaving, I give you two weeks and they'll hardly remember who you are. Because these institutions persist, these institutions continue uh, to grow and, and, and develop. And, and so it was right at that moment that um, I had a conversation with uh, uh, the founder of the, the company I work with now, uh, Global Infrastructure Partners, Bio Ogunlesi is his name, he's originally from Nigeria. And uh, he's been one of the most successful infrastructure investors. And I would have happily stayed at the World Bank longer, but it was just absolutely the right moment because this this guy who'd been so successful in infrastructure in OECD countries was you know, now moving into emerging markets aggressively. And so uh, it was the right time. Um, and you know, th these departures are always a little bit, you know, they're, they're, they're tricky, especially because you, know, you, you think, oh, you know, gosh, there's, they like me, they want me to stay. But the institution's doing fine. They're, you know, again, their lending is huge now and they're playing a hugely important role in the COVID response. And so I listened to Marshall. Marshall has coached Alan Mullally, has coached Mike Duke, uh, um, has coached a lot of the, the pharma CEOs. He's, he's one of the most, uh, you know, he probably, I'm sure he is the most celebrated leadership coach. And he brings to every um, uh, client all the lessons he learned from all of these great leaders. And so uh, this was really helpful to me. And if there's, there's a lesson that, that I would uh, give to people on the LinkedIn community who are watching is, you know, if you don't have a coach, Think about getting a coach and listen to them, and and don't definitely don't get a coach who only tells you that you're great. You know, get a coach that will that will just give it to you, you know, right between the eyes, but then help you get better. Everyone can get better, in my view, and I really cherish that that for ten years, uh, now twelve years now, uh, Marshall's been coaching me. That was infectious disease specialist and pandemic fighter, Dr. Jim Young Kim. I always love speaking with Jim. He straddles so many worlds, finance, health, developed countries, one struggling with extreme poverty. But I've also got a soft spot for him because uh, Jim was the first interview that we did at LinkedIn. Six years ago, he sat down with us before we even had a studio. We were in a empty floor of the Empire State Building. There was dust from the developers all around us. And he sat there and talked about all of the World Bank's plans. It was really incredible. I'm hoping that with the help of a solid vaccine protocol, we can recreate that in a real studio face-to-face -face at some point soon. Several times during our conversation, Jim talked about the importance of leadership, that no matter what the scientific community comes up with, good leadership is gonna be required to actually get us through this. And he said that what has helped him become a better leader is coaching. No matter how successful he is, he needs that coaching. I would love to hear from you how you keep it real. Who do you rely on, whether it's a professional coach or a friend or a colleague? Who tells you what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and how you could do it better? Let us know by posting on LinkedIn and using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. As always, to get more news and insights, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. 
please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners find the show. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Dave Pond and Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you next week.